Welcome to the Agent of Influence podcast with Nabil Hanan. I'm your host, Nabil Hanan, Managing Director at NetSpy. This is a podcast sponsored by NetSpy as a place to share best practices and trends in the world of cybersecurity and vulnerability management. Portions of this interview will appear in print on the NetSpy executive blog. To find out more, go to www.netspy.com slash agent of influence. This is an episode in a series of interviews with industry leaders and security gurus, and it's my pleasure to have with me today, Miles Edmondson. Hi, Miles. Good morning, Nabil. How are you? I'm well. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thank you very, very much for having me on. It's uh, my pleasure. Miles has spent nearly 30 years in the IT and information security space. He started when the internet was young, and so was he. Over his career, he has worked with two different consulting firms. He was Carlson Company's first global information security manager, worked for the largest crop insurance company in the world, and served as both the CISO for Ceridian as well as the U.S. CISO for Equinity. His last 12 to 14 years have been in the financial services industry. He's scaling back now to spend more time with grandkids, exercising, and playing his guitars. But he's always interested in chatting with businesses about their information security questions and concerns. So, Miles, how did you get started with security? Gosh, uh, when the internet was young, and I was as well. That's <laughs> that's a good good lead into this. Actually, at the time, I was working for Warehouser. I was their uh, finance and administration manager here in their St. Paul distribution center. And at the time, Warehouser had uh, many systems that would wake up in the middle of the night and communicate back with the uh, corporate office in Federal Way, Washington. Uh, Warehouser decided to move to a client server systems, and actually at the time they were Windows 3.11 uh, operating systems. So when they did that, they decided they needed people at each one of the facilities that could manage a network. So they sent me to Microsoft School, and that's where I got my my first education into networking in the Microsoft operating systems. That's fantastic. And is during that training, did you have specific focus on security or was it more just generic training on networking? It was all generic training on networking, uh, you know, managing uh, DHCP addresses and, and even hard, uh, even hardware troubleshooting. Uh, I was troubleshooting wires across uh, a, a large network and managed to find a, a, a staple going through one of the low voltage wires one time, uh, trying to figure <laughs> out why we were having intermittent problems with uh, with one of our locations. So, yeah, it was it was basically hands on onto the network, and security wasn't really something that was being uh, looked at at the time. It's such a, such a difference. We've come such a long way with, you know, so many certifications now around security and network security that just didn't exist uh, a while ago. But it makes sense given the infancy of the Internet back then. So I know when we last spoke, you had an interesting story about how you explored, and I'm using air quotes here, the network neighborhood to find some interesting things back in the day. We want to share with our audience that story? Uh, absolutely. So uh, being sort of curious uh, about how networks are supposed to work, 
there's this icon on the desktop that says network neighborhood. So I let's see just what we can see when we when we click on that. So I did, and it took a while to populate, but uh, we had at the, our location probably 25 or so different systems. But uh, showing up on my network neighborhood, I saw over 2,500 different systems. And it didn't take long to, as I was looking at them, I began to realize I'm seeing the entire uh, client server systems for all of Warehouser. And it became clear that there was a naming convention by location so that our machines, for example, were SP for St. Paul, uh, Fresno, California had the naming, the same sort of naming convention, Chicago, uh, Detroit, things like that. And it was easy to see corporate machines. And even some of them had uh, job descriptions or areas of the, the company associated with the machine names. So uh, it took me probably 30 minutes of looking around until I stumbled upon the CFO's machine and uh, was able to click into, into that machine and stumbled upon uh, spreadsheets with executive level salaries. So at that point, I, I, I raised the, my hand with the IT support guys uh, in Federal Way and said, you may want to take a look at this because I don't think this is right. And that's where I finally got very interested in security and began to think, okay, this is kind of a big deal. That's true. And this scenario shows you that being in security or even exposing sensitive information doesn't always require having a very high degree of skill. There's this misconception that you have to be super skilled to breach into, into places. In many cases, there are simple misconfigurations that can cause a lot of these problems, like the one that, that you just described here. And exactly. in, many, in many cases, it was very common practice to name the machines with the location and the name of the person who uses it and things of that nature that made it very convenient for someone exploring to actually get somewhere uh, if they wanted to like a potential, you know, CFO's machine like you stumbled upon. So, you know, sometimes show, this shows you that the naming convention can be helpful when you're looking for things, but can also be helpful to someone malicious potentially if they wanted to get to sensitive things. Exactly correct. And, and it also shows that, as you pointed out, you don't necessarily need a high degree of sophistication or technology uh, abilities. Uh, all I was was a curious employee looking around, and mm -hmm. that's kind of stunning. And you happened to do the right thing and raised your hand and notified the right people. Uh, and many people may not have done that. So who knows how long this could have gone on for as well. Exactly. So they're lucky to have you. Before your networking background and training, what did you do around coding and um, other software and computer things that kept you busy? Well, at the, at the time, computer science was, was really just getting started in a lot of the colleges and universities. Uh, a lot of it consisted of just uh, programming languages. Uh, so I was at the University of Minnesota, and I took a couple of Fortran classes, uh, uh, coding classes. At, at that time, we did it all with punch cards, and you had to <laughs> bring in the punch cards all in order in, into the central uh, processing uh, facility, 
And if you had them in by, say, 8 o'clock at night, you could pick them up by 8 o'clock or something in the morning because they ran all of the jobs uh, in the evening. So, And if it didn't run, if it didn't run, if you had an error, then it was back the next day. You'd get the results that didn't work, and then you'd have to go figure out what didn't work and uh, try to fix it and submit it again the next day. So, uh, And you never wanted to drop your cards because then you could have a mess. <laughs> then you could have a mess. Technology's come a long way. We take for granted things like IDEs and compilers and the fact that we can run our programs so quickly today. In fact, thinking that you would need to wait a full, you know, 12 to 24 hours to, to cycle through your program and make sure it worked, it's almost unfathomable right now. I mean, think of how picky developers are if their code takes too long to even go through like a CI/CD pipeline. So it, it's it's nice to see how far we've come, and it's uh, important for people to appreciate that, you know, we are a little spoiled today than than how things started back when computer science was at its infancy. Would you say that your experience with Fortran and coding with punch cards played a key role in your career and how well you understood how software works? I don't know if it was a key role, but it did help me get an understanding of uh, the logic uh, process and get an understanding of some of the languages. So I, I have uh, uh, a deep respect. Absolutely through my whole career, I've had a deep respect for people who do coding. Uh, to me, they are creating things out of nothing, and it is absolutely fascinating to me. So uh, I always liked working with the developers and was spent time listening to them. So it was it was uh, I'm I'm not a good coder, and I know that uh, I sometimes wish I would have focused more on that, uh, but I just never had the chance to do it. Absolutely. So. You went and changed your career from consulting to being a practitioner. Can you share with us how that transition was and what were some key differences or similarities going from being a consultant to being a practitioner? The most interesting thing for me as a consultant was you could walk in, you do whatever the issue was uh, that you were tasked to do. A lot of it was uh, uh, testing for vulnerabilities, uh, external or internal pen testing, social engineering engagements. Those things were really fun. Uh, and then you would leave and go on and you kind of do the same thing. But you never got a chance to see some things mature. Uh, so when I moved to Carlson Companies, that was uh, that first non-consulting job that I had had in this capacity, and I was their first uh, global information security manager. They did not have a CISO at the time. I was it, and so I sat at their corporate office uh, across uh, seven lines of business globally, and I was the the only person at the time. When I walked in, because this was a brand new role, my budget was $100,000, <laughs> and not counting my salary, and it was already earmarked for uh, a specific project. So uh, that's what we did the, my first, uh, first year there, was kind of get that off and running. And then by the time I left, I was there for about three years. By the time I left, they had brought in a CISO, and uh, 
we went from a hundred thousand budget, uh, hundred thousand dollar budget to I think about three and a half million. I can't exactly remember. And we had a huge number of initiatives uh, underway at that point. So it was really a dynamic uh, environment, and I got to see it mature. It was really quite fun, and and build relationships with people all over the world, all over the world, and some of them I still uh, stay in contact with. Uh, and uh, I consider that really one of the funnest jobs I've ever had. I mean, I know for a fact that in my career, I attribute a lot of the success to the relationships that I've managed to build over time. And they all come into play in different ways in the long term that sometimes you don't even understand or imagine that they're going to come into play in that way. What would you say are some key things to focus on when you are building relationships and, and meeting so many people as part of your professional career? Uh, I'm going to take that question a couple of different ways. Um, one is uh, when I was with Carlson, I was reading this book, actually a little before Carlson, uh, Getting to Great, I think was the name of it. And they talked about people who were excellent in their field. And, and, and they weren't necessarily executives. I mean, one of the people that they talked about was uh, a hotel um, maid, a housekeeping person. And when they interviewed her and asked her about her job, she didn't say she was a housekeeping person at a hotel chain. She said she was a representative of her company. She was a representative of her state. And she wanted to ensure that people were having uh, a wonderful time at, at her facility. She was doing all she could to make that happen. So when I thought about my job at Carlson, if, if people ask me what I did, it, it might seem strange, but my response uh, was often, I helped promote world understanding. Because Carlson was huge in international mm -hmm. travel. And I thought it was critically important for, for people to know that the world is much bigger than Minneapolis. And it was important to get out into the world and see and talk to other people and get their worldview and see how they live. I just, I was passionate about that. And I think that's one of the reasons I maintained those relationships. The other half of that question or the other way I would go with it is I asked questions. I didn't tell, I asked questions and I listened. Uh, and I was conscious, very conscious, especially when I traveled internationally, that I was a representative of the United States. And sometimes U.S. citizens did not have good, um, good rep uh, reputations when they traveled internationally. I was incredibly conscious of that and tried to make sure that uh, I did what I could in terms of that, uh, that uh, reputation. So I spent time listening. No, those are great stories. And it's so true, too, that ultimately, regardless of your specific role in an organization, you are the face of the organization to whoever you meet, regardless of your job, your role, and, you know, how senior or junior you might be. So that's a, that's a great, great, great lesson that you, that you bring forward. Um, and a great story, too, about the hotel maid. And in terms of those asking questions and representing your country, I have been fortunate to travel internationally throughout my life from childhood. And it's interesting that how quickly your perception of countries or people from certain regions form 
just from your initial interaction. So if you're meeting somebody for the first time from a country that you've never heard of, they leave a lasting impression on you on what you perceive people from that country are going to be like. And, and it's so true that, you know, we have to be very cognizant when we're traveling internationally that the world is very large and there are different views, different perspectives, and being able to understand and appreciate those are definitely important things that I've also tried to do. So it's great to hear that from you as well. So, so Miles, you were a CISO as well in your career. And this is a question I like asking a lot of the CISOs, which is when you start the role of CISO, how do you go about making decisions on priority and areas of focus? And what are some of the key things you do as you get started in that role? Well, in, in the roles that I was in, uh, my general approach, uh, when people ask me what are, the, what are the first things that you want when you walk into the, into the office those, that first week or so, and I always wanted uh, order charts. I want to know who's who and how to reach out to different people. And I wanted to start trying to build relationships with those people. And the other thing I wanted to do was see any audit reports or were there regulatory reports that we needed to be paying attention to. And those generally were the areas that I started to focus on. Uh, so, for example, I remember one location we walked into and, and they had had an audit report with over 20 uh, high-risk findings. Okay, let me see the audit report. And we started, as I started to look through it, it became clear that the, the audit report wasn't written the way I would have liked to have seen it written. It was specifics. There were specific findings. You had this insecure protocol on this machine and you had this insecure protocol on these five machines. And um, that, that wasn't the issue. The issue was we needed a um, secure build standard. And that, so that was really the issue. So it, it took me a little while to look at these things, step back and say, what are really the underlying issues that we need to focus on? So th that's just how I do it. So it just depends on you know what you walk into, what the audit findings are, what the regulatory issues are, and um, how much staff do you have, how much budget do you have, and what do you want to prioritize? What would you say is the main challenge that a CISO faces on his day-to-day activities? Keeping up. <laughs> keeping, up with, keeping up with all of the requirements. Uh, it is, uh, in many respects, uh, juggling a, a number of different uh, items in the air all at the same time. And getting, getting um, buffeted by winds from from uh, regulatory uh, folks, compliance folks, uh, audit folks, com uh, clients, and uh, being constrained with budgets and personnel and talent and all of those kinds of things. It is really a difficult job to have. And then being effectively on call 24-7, 365. Do you have any advice for aspiring CISOs or existing CISOs that are struggling uh, with this today? That's a wonderful question. I am going to give you a comment. Um, I'm just looking for it here. 
uh, over my over the years, I've subscribed to a quote line. So every day, I get a quote from somebody, uh, an email quote, and there are two of them that I have used periodically uh, over my career, and I'll, I'll pass both of those quotes on if that's all right. Absolutely. All right. So the first one is for from uh, Teddy Roosevelt. Uh, he was president of the United States from, I think, 1901 to 1908, something like that. And he said, do what you can, where you are, with what you have. And I thought, I've done that. You, you can only do so much, do what you can, uh, with what you have, where you are, and just go. So I, 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 I've always liked that. And the other one is from Winston Churchill um, during uh, World War II. And this is, this is uh, not the exact quote, but uh, the soundbite of it and what people have used is his comment, never, never, never give up. And uh, again, that wasn't exactly the quote, but it, it seems to have uh, served me well in that capacity. <laughs> no, that's, that's great. And those are all good quotes and good advice for many things. So exactly. you know, thanks for sharing that. Let's uh, switch gears slightly. Um, I know that you have a passion for guitar and music. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that on how you got started and, and what you love about the music that you play? Well, the, the guitar for me, I've been playing it since uh, high school. Uh, that's not exactly true. Uh, I played in high school and then through college a little bit. Never uh, singing group uh, at my church when I was growing growing up. Uh, but then I got married and had kids, and I effectively put it away for uh, almost 20 years. And on one of the consulting engagements I was at, I uh, was in L.A., and I met... Um, someone from our client's uh, office who was a guitar player and was instrumental to our success uh, in the project uh, that we were working on. And uh, we started to talk guitars, and he said, uh, what's your schedule like today, like right now? And I said, I'm kind of open. He said, let's go. And we got to his car. He drove me to a Sam Ash music store, and we walked to the back where the guitars were. He picked a guitar off the wall and said, Play. And I think he was testing me to see if I was being honest with him. And fortunately, I was still able to play some things 20 years uh, later. And it was enough to help cement a relationship. And uh, we're still, he and I are still friends. Uh, but the guitar is this fascinating instrument that if you can learn, you know, a dozen power chords and crank the amp up and uh, scream into a microphone and be a rock star. Or you can be... Uh, <laughs> Or you can be a classical player and try to master the guitar your whole life and, and, and maybe never get there. So I am, I've, mm -hmm. I've never been in a band and I don't sing. I play solo guitar music, uh, some Bach, some Gaspar Sants, uh, some, cla so some classical things. I've got a Beethoven piece. Uh, and then uh, some Chet Atkins, ver Atkins versions of different songs. So it's all fingerstyle and classical stuff that I like to play. So of all the pieces, what's your favorite piece to play? Vincent. 
Vincent by uh, Chet Atkins. I think it's a beautiful mm-hmm. arrangement. But awesome. there's a there's a there are a couple of other pieces from Bach too that uh, I really do like to play. Classical gas. You can't go off <laughs> on classical gas. Of course not. So, uh, one last question. I know that you have four grandchildren, and you are looking forward to retirement and spending more time with them. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about your plans and what exciting things you have uh, in the horizon with them? I do. I have three grandsons and one granddaughter. Two of the boys are in uh, the Colorado area, and then my oldest grandson and my granddaughter live just a mile and a half away from me. Uh, so I'm with the with the COVID uh, nineteen situation right now. My Time spent watching hockey for my oldest grandson has been greatly reduced. They're not playing hockey right now, but I've watched more hockey than I've ever watched in my entire life over the last four (laughs) years or five years. And it's really fun to see him uh, mature, get faster, uh, stronger, and and, um, become... Uh, more confident in what he's doing. The same with my granddaughter. She's in dance, and there's a, there's a virtual recital coming up. Uh, the two grandsons in Colorado are com- coming to spend. Uh, they usually come out and spend uh, a, a month or so with us in uh, in the summer, and they're going to be coming out in July. Looking forward to see, seeing them, and it's, it's uh, exhausting. Uh, because they're two little boys and they just run your ragged, but it's a wonderful time and I, I can't wait to see them. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, I'm, I'm glad you're looking forward to that. Uh, and it sounds like a lot of fun. Absolutely. And it'll, it'll be something that'll keep you busy too, which is nice. Exactly. So Miles, well, thank you so much for joining us. This has been fun and interesting and informative. Really appreciate your time. It has been my sincere pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you. This has been an Agent of Influence podcast with Nabil Hanan. Portions of this interview can be found in print on the NetSpy Executive blog. And please subscribe for future episodes of Agent of Influence at www.netspy.com slash agent of influence.